You see, any simple model of human nature is going to be wrong. Human nature is complex. Many emotions are possible. Many motivations are possible in the human mind. So a simplistic motivation, that you know, a simplistic model of human nature, uh, humans are motivated by profit, is absurd. I'm not denying that that motivation exists, but they are denying all the others. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 243. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's got so much stuff in its dock today, you might just say it's having a bit of a breakdown. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Actually, Wes, the votes are out. Will no make it this episode? Will it not? The chat room is currently running the odds. But before we get there, we have some news from Valve, and Apple is currently poaching Linux developers. It's actually even more mysterious than you might think. Say what? And then, there's some new NVIDIA features coming to Snap Packages. Wimpy's here. He'll tell us all about that. LSOF is a really handy tool to tell you what your Linux box is doing, especially what files are open. But there's a way now to make it even cooler with visuals and all of that stuff. Plus, we'll tell you how 500,000 lines of code are being cut from the Linux kernel. Daniel Foray will jump in here and tell us about the march towards Juno, and then Wes has got oregano. What is it, and why has Wes loaded it? Well, it fits with an overall theme. Later on in the show today, we're going to talk about an opinion piece that ran in The Guardian that was authored by one Richard Stallman, and it's his radical proposal to keep your data safe. He says the surveillance imposed on modern society far exceeds that of the Soviet Union. For freedom and democracy's sake, we need to eliminate most of it. And for Richard, he's got some pretty salient-centered opinions on how we could do that. It involves some tweaks to existing surveillance systems and payment systems, but it's worth discussing. So we'll get to that later on in the show. But before we go any further, we must bring in that virtual lug. Time-appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hey. Hello, hello. Hey, Gazer. Hello. I don't, I don't know what any of that was, but I loved all of it. Hello, guys. How are you doing today? We have a good showing. Wimpy, it's good to see you back. Hello, hello. Hello, hello, sir. Good to have you, as always. Um, guys, what do you say we start the show out today with uh, a little Valve news? We haven't talked about Valve in a little while. Cue the Valve. Oh, there it is. Yep. Send shivers down my spine every time. I don't think this move surprises anyone, uh, but... Um, it appears that Steam machines are just silently disappearing from the Valve website. <laughs> yeah, uh, Liam over at uh, GamingOnLinux.com has this. He says, in fact, the entire hardware page on Steam is now gone. And anyone that goes to the direct link, the store.steampower.com slash hardware, is just redirected to a basic search page. Uh, and uh, it looks like when he did some digging, it must have uh, rolled through earlier this month. You know, when I was down at Dell, I kind of got a uh, cold read on the future. They weren't sure. They thought maybe VR and 4K would push it over, but I don't think there's been a huge demand on Steam machines for VR. And that's sort of what they were banking on to bring them to the next level and be competitive with consoles. That was going to be their secret sauce. And it didn't materialize. You know, and even now, like if you, like Liam makes the point, there's now over 4,000 Linux games oh, on Steam. Yeah. Uh, with more releasing every single day. Of course, a lot of them are junk, but that just has how it always goes. Some of them are great, too. Uh, I uh, I got to be honest. I think I bought into the hype pretty big back in the day when these things were first announced because, if you remember, it was a hype sandwich. It had uh, it had Windows Store momentum that was freaking out Valve <laughs> yeah. and, and uh, Epic and other game developers. And then you had the whole like layer, the tasty, tasty layer of the Steam client getting developed and created for Linux. And then the finish at the bottom there was the nice savory fact that then they were going to ship purpose-built hardware to run Steam and they were going to create their own Linux distribution. And um, I mean, how could I not get excited about that? That's just that is some exciting yeah. shit. The reality is, though, that uh, consoles have really not changed much since they launched the market. Microsoft and Sony have, and Nintendo have continued to, to lock that market up. Uh, console gamers seem to be a different type of gamer than PC gamers to a large extent. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a big gamer, but it seems to be that the, the markets aren't, maybe there's not a big crossover there. Right. And there hasn't been a huge amount of radical change either, you know, that would, that would naturally lead to a new contender coming in. 
Yeah, I you know maybe this is just them redoing stuff, but uh, I don't know. Anybody in the mumble room have any takes on uh, Valve pulling down the Steam machines off of the website? Is this a sign? Yeah, that things a are little over? bit. Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with the, the very successful Steam Link because you can then just use your regular PC across the network, plug it into your TV, and boom, there's your console. I can hundred percent see that. Yep. Yeah, the Steam Link has been the Steam Link and the Steam Controller have been the successful byproducts of that experiment. Very much so. Yeah. And uh, exactly as a proud owner, I'm like, yeah, that's it. That's got to be it. And it makes sense. Then you invest once in a really nice graphics card and a really nice desktop PC, and then you can stream it to multiple televisions. And it actually works. You know, I've got one. I've only used it a little bit, but it, I was impressed. It actually works. And NVIDIA's got something similar uh, that's built into the NVIDIA Shield. You can do the same thing to the NVIDIA Shield TV if you have a Windows box. Right. So there you go. I don't, I don't know. All right. How about a mystery? You guys want a little mystery? Uh, oh, yeah, and, and Bacon points out in the chat room, she's Bacon points out that the Moonlight Project, which lets you just use a Raspberry Pi, because remember, it's an H.264 stream here. All right, how about this one? I, I, what do you guys make of this? What is going on? Apple, for unknown reasons, is looking to hire multiple Linux kernel developers in both Texas and in California. Is that right? Yeah, they specifically are looking for people with Linux kernel development experience and uh, someone with five plus years of embedded Linux kernel development experience in understanding of the Linux kernel internals, familiarity with ARM, and Linux kernel device driver development experience. Odd. In Cupertino and in Cupertino and in Texas, in Tejas. I'm not sure. I don't know where is there. It doesn't say what town in Tejas, but um, oh, Austin. Yeah. What is that about? So it doesn't necessarily seem like it, you know, it seems device oriented or something in the embedded space, if not, you know, not their server. Like, if server stuff maybe would make more sense. Yeah. Like this. It's just weird that when it's paired at that same time, those rumors going around that they're switching CPUs, they're going to ARM. Uh, but if you're in the Austin area or the Cupertino area, you might want to get a gig because they, you know, probably pay pretty decent and um, could just be for building custom systems in their data centers. You know, it could be. Could be. Could be. Arm embedded. Arm embedded. Yeah. Um, And so I did a little uh, I did a little digging to see if this is the first time they've ever done this. And it is not. It is not. This has been going on. I I found two other job postings this year where they were looking for uh, potential employees with Linux development experience and everything from Linux file systems was one of the requirements uh, familiarity with Linux file systems. and uh, it, it could just be that they are looking to make their products better. And so they want to hire somebody that is working on a superior superior built system. I mean, I, you know what I'm saying? Ooh, I mean, I'm not that's trying a to... punch to the gut there. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of their kernel, eh, Chris? Well, I, who knows? I, I, who am I to say? But you got to wonder if it's not a good way to vet a, a, a better developer from a, a, a less better developer. Just take a risk on somebody that has some kernel experience you probably probably a good chance they know what they're doing yeah and probably have some yeah easily easy to vet open source contributions exactly exactly so anyways isn't that weird it's been going around it's been going around in in two different locations Mm. too so i mentioned some new features this week well check this out hot little i have my hot little hands here i have some notes about a new release of snappy which supports NVIDIA drivers, and it will be shipping in Ubuntu 18.04 LTS. Apparently, this is all part of Snap 2.32.2, which is available for download now and runs on all Snappy-enabled GNU-slash-Linux distributions. Now, I could sit here and tell you about it, but I I probably would be doing a disservice when we could just ask Mr. Wimpy uh, kind of the details about this. But, Wimpy, if I'm grokking this story, it looks like snapped applications can now take advantage of the binary NVIDIA driver for full acceleration and maybe even CUDA. I, I, I don't know how deep it goes, but what's the details? Well, this isn't something new. This is just a change to accommodate the NVIDIA 390 drivers. Oh, I see. <clears throat> this has already yeah. been possible. Oh yeah, this has been this has been there for some time now. News to me, but the <laughs> yeah, okay. So uh, yes, but it's been around for a while. So you know, when you install games like um, uh, what's the Mario Kart thing, Super Tux Kart 
there's a snap of that. That's obviously using all of that stuff already. Um, but the 390 drivers have a different layout and structure and different shared object names and the confinement model ne- needed to be updated to uh, support that, those, those new drivers. Ah, uh, anything in particular that I'd find interesting? So what did NVIDIA do with the 390 release that, because I assume the trick is, is talking outside the sandbox. Is that, is that what has to be sort of shored up? Is that capability? Yeah, it's passing through to the drivers on the host operating system, yeah, and the location of the shared objects have changed in some cases, so they didn't they didn't hook up properly, mm-hmm. but they do now. Mm-hmm. And that'll be in eighteen oh four when it ships. It's already in eighteen oh four, and it's making its way to the other flavors, you know, the other uh, releases in due course. Looks like there are some improvements to temporary files with App Armor as well with uh, Snap D, so that looks good. Um. I uh, I gotta say, this is me saying this, and I'm not saying it because Wimpy's here. Seeing uh, now, Popey too. Hi, Popey. I uh, seen Hello. a seen a lot of good pickups of snaps. It yeah, feels it's all like momentum. Mm-hmm. Flatpak's got some pickups this week too, but I really feel like snaps have maintained a pretty strong trajectory. Hey, Chris. Yes, while you're on that, yeah. While you're on that trip, I've got a great snap for you. Oh yeah, tell me about it. Coin top. Snap install coin top. (laughs) You will totally love this. This is completely up your alley. You will love this. We'll do it live. Snap install coin top and then just run coin top. All right. I'm uh, snap installing right now. It's an HTOP style interface to cryptocurrency. I I knew you were going to say that. I love it. I already love it so much. That's great. And of course, you would be the person to know about this, uh, Snap. I know this is an area that you... Oh, this well, is... Yes. Look I have my finger that. on the pulse of this, of course. Yes. Yeah, this... You know, Popey is your go-to guy for cryptocurrency. As and, always. And all of your VR inquiries should come to me. <laughs> Guys, this is... Uh, this is so cool. All right, everybody, uh, go and go snap install Cointop because I the part that really the really sells it for me is the ticker graph along the top. When you can generate a, a graph like that on a on a command line application, that deserves an you install. You put in some 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 love there. So uh, gives you gives you the uh, uh, the top thirteen at least in how many I can fit. I suppose if I were to make my oh just page down page down left yeah. and right there you go them down there you go oh yeah there we go and oh the the letters at the top of the columns will sort the columns and all that it's brilliant Na- nano coin huh hmm interesting wow there's more coins these days and I I would know what to do with that is a great app that is thanks a little uh, bonus uh, app pick there from Mr Popey appreciate that. Uh, well, uh, I guess I guess what I thought was a great development for Snaps is just business as usual and keeping things moving along, and uh, <laughs> which is also good. It's good not to have those kinds of things break. Well, while we're talking about really cool apps, Wes found LSOF to Graph Viz. Now, LSOF, as you know, lists all of the open files on your Linux rig, and that's cool. But what if you could graph it all? And it looks so neat. I did it here on my uh, Plasma Neon box, and it is, it's really cool. Like, I actually forgot that I had Postgres running. So you can see, I, uh, if, uh, if you ran it on yours, you'd see all the different all the different processes and which ones are communicating to which over, like, a loopback adapter. You can see that Systemd literally has its hooks into, like, a bajillion things. It's really kind of intense. Um and I also realize how many applications on my machine have a back-end front-end arrangement, like Spotify and a bunch of others that have a back-end listening process. And it, it, it visualizes those links between those processes. Yeah, it's a fascinating look that, I mean, you can obviously piece together through various other options, but especially maybe if you're interrogating a system you're not too familiar with or you're trying to do an audit, this is a helpful overview. Yeah, it was. Well, I guess, oh yeah, Postgres. I forgot I did that <laughs> for a show one time. And uh, you have to have Lua installed, and you have to have GraphViz installed. And if you're on 16.04 and you install Lua 5.3, the uh, package maintainer didn't set up a symbolic link. So you have to symbolically link user bin Lua 5.3 to user bin Lua. But once you do those things, it generates a nice pretty graph for you. It sure does. <laughs> and we'll have a link in the show notes if uh, you want to see that. New show notes, too. Got to mention this. I really got to be I got to be better about this because I'm still getting tweets. <laughs> from people. They don't know. They don't know that we have LinuxUnplugged.com now. Ooh, yeah, that's Linux, so shiny. Yeah, if you go to LinuxUnplugged.com slash 243, you get links to anything, any apps we talked about, anything like that. Just Linux Unplugged. I'm doing it right now. You can do it with me. Linuxunplug.com slash 243. Boom. Uh, of course, as we do this show, it's not posted yet. But after it's posted, it'll be live. That's the new website. A new RSS feed there, too. Linuxunplugged.com slash RSS. If you want to plug that in your podcast catcher of choice, 
And uh, if you've uh, got one of those podcast catchers that supports chapter markers, check those out too. And you know, while I'm talking about chapter markers, I'll give a, a plug to a user error this week. It's back, episode 47, with nice. Noah, myself, and Joe's on there. Joe Resington Ooh. joins us for, I thought, a particularly good episode of the user error program, also with chapter markers. Boom. Boom. Got the chapter markers everywhere. So if you've got a podcast catcher that supports them, go take advantage of that. Let's take a moment and let's thank Ting for sponsoring the Unplugged program. Linux.ting.com. You know, I could tell you about Ting, but it's been a while since we've heard from Kyra. So let's have Kyra do it. What do you say? You want to do it? All right, Kyra, tell me about Ting. Ting keeps rates simple. We don't make you pick a plan. Instead, you just use your phone as you normally would. How much you use determines how much you pay each month. You can have as many devices as you want on one account. That's good, because when you use more, you pay less per minute, message, or megabyte of data. Your usage, plus $6 per active device on your account, plus taxes, is your monthly bill. Simple. That's what we mean when we say... Mobile. That makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's better than Unlimited, because you have to pay a lot of money for Unlimited, but with Ting, you just pay for what you use. $6 a month, your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. Nationwide coverage, CDMA and GSM. No contracts, no agreements, no early termination fees, none of that, plus great customer service. Those are all the extra things I like to mention that I she couldn't fit into that uh, jazzy tune. But check it out, linux.ting.com. It'll take $25 off a device, or if you just want to bring one that's compatible, because they do have the two networks, so check their BYOD page, then they'll give you $25 in service credit. linux.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the Unplugged program. linux.ting.com. So there's just one story that's gotten a lot of attention this week, and it's a total non-story. Huh. So we're just gonna, we're gonna we're gonna razz it here a little bit. We're gonna take a piss, I believe, as our friends from across the pond would say. Uh, hey, hello, hello, Dan. I'm glad you made it because uh, guess what? A Juno Progress update is our next story. So I'm glad uh, you could make it into the to the show today, Mr. Yay. Ford. Uh, yeah. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about this hype story though. Uh, the Linux kernel is cutting its code size by 500,000 lines of code <gasps> by dropping support for old CPU architectures. And I know a lot of you, did your ears pick up and go, does that mean 32-bit? Does that mean 32-bit? Does that mean, does that mean PowerPC? What does that mean? No, it's nothing like that. It's like, it's like these crazy ones, like Mettag, MN1030, uh, Backflin. Uh, there's one called, there's a Chris CPU architecture. Oh, don't cut that one. Uh, they're gonna, and the Unicord 32, it's gone. Uh, also, hexagon architectures are out, uh, but their, uh, their, their maintainers are trying to step up their, uh, their contributions, so they may keep it. But they say killing off support for, the, for these different architectures that aren't really used anymore is beneficial for uh, lots of reasons. Number one, it'll reduce the attack surface of the kernel, um, and it also just reduces the damn size of the kernel, which is particularly nice. And although many of us have fond memories of working on these old systems, it is time to move on and out with the old and with the new. Got to get all those new ARM processor and phone supports in there after all. Yeah, it looks like that'll be about a, I don't know, a little under 2.5% reduction. So no kidding. Oh, that's not too did bad. You just, did you just do a little quick math over there? Quick math. I heard you quick math in it over there. <laughs> You're on a roll today. Wes also spun up a uh, server uh, uh, app pick we're going to be talking about later in the show. Um, during the intro of the show, I think you spun mm-hmm. that up. You <laughs> maniac. All right. So uh, Daniel Foray from Elementary OS is here, and his timing is great because I want to talk about the slow and steady march towards Juno. Now, Juno is the next release of elementary OS, which will be based on 1804 LTS of Ubuntu, and lots of new things are coming. We've been kind of covering this as it gets here, and a new post went up, and uh, there, you guys uh, you guys um, have a feature that I'll say is inspired by Unity that was one of the best new user Unity features. So why don't we start there, Dan? Yeah, so, um, you know, a couple of the things we've been looking at with this release especially is uh, kind of user feedback and figuring out what do people feel like is missing or what are people saying that maybe elementary OS can't do right now and, and kind of showing them how they can do it. And so this is, I think, one of the great ways that um, Unity showed them how you can use keyboard shortcuts there. And so we said, hey, this is a great idea. Let's implement it. So you mash down the super key, essentially, and if you hold it long enough, a uh, a pop-up comes up with an overview of the keyboard shortcuts that the end user might want to cycle through a window or switch workspaces or take a screenshot or even zoom an application in. And uh, But then you guys went further than that. You can also remap what that uh, super key goes to, yeah? 
Like you can yeah, change so, the mash behavior. <laughs> yeah. So we set that up because we know that um, people have different expectations of what they want the super key to be. So we figured, you know, the first try we're going to have it uh, pop up uh, the keyboard shortcuts to show them, you know, the, this is what we set it up as default. But then you have a quick shortcut that'll put you right into shortcut settings and you can have it uh, show instead the applications menu or you can just have it do nothing if it's getting in your way. Looks like as while we're talking about system settings, uh, the Bluetooth menu got reworked quite a bit. New device discovery seems a little different. And is this essentially moving away from like the GNOME tools and and rolling your own Bluetooth stuff here with the management aspect? Right. So one of the things that we have to kind of work with in a new release is changes that upstreams have made. And um, the GNOME Bluetooth wizard has actually been deprecated upstream for a really long time. And so we're, we've kind of finally moved away from that and have more of our own tools. Mm. Wow. It looks nice and clean, it sure as does. it always does. It almost goes without saying these days that it always looks nice and clean. Uh, okay. Thanks. So the one thing that I wasn't clear on is you guys have GeoClue, uh, a GeoClue API that developers that are creating applications for elementary OS can use to ascertain the user's location, and that's controllable by the end user. Uh, so what's, yeah. what's new with Juno? Because that's, that's already existed, correct? Right. So we had the GeoClue API in before, uh, but there were some big problems. One was that we didn't have any documentation available for it on Volodoc. Mm. Uh, another was that... Um, you had to ship a custom VAPI file with your uh, app to actually use it. So that was kind of inconvenient and you have to know how to do that. And then another big issue we had is there was no real incentive for developers or users to care about this API because uh, they had no kind of control or interaction with it. Hmm. Well, and now, now it's like even more like uh, you could, what the part I didn't quite, quite grok was like, now it's like down to the nearest town or like you can get more fine grained of how close it gets for the, yeah, so for the what, user. What we do is that now when an app uh, wants to get your location through GeoClue, we throw up a little alert dialogue and we ask you permission and then we let you know what kind of accuracy that the app is requesting. So you can know, oh, hey, I see. Okay. like, right. So if you have an app that um, should only be requesting country level, but it's requesting street level, you yeah. can say, hey, no, like, I don't want to do that. Ah, yeah. that's slick. Hmm. Well, so that's uh, those are the things that jumped out at me. Is there any other things that anything I missed or anything you want to mention? Uh, yeah, I mean, we've been trying to um, look at some things that our users have been asking for. And one of the big ones is some more changes to code. Um, so oh, yeah. there was... Yeah, there was recently a poll in the Vala Google Plus community um, that said that more people are using elementary code to write Vala apps than Gedit and GNOME Builder combined. Wow. Huh. Yeah, so we're really going hard on trying to make this a great code editor. Yeah. Uh, we've added a new fast style scheme switcher, so you can easily go into dark mode uh, with solarized dark or light mode with solarized light, and that's just a one-button click back and forth. I like that. Yeah, I see that. Uh, I, uh this uh, this is one of these. Uh, I don't have I have I ever. It wasn't this renamed. Like this is. I knew this by another name before, didn't I? Before it became code. Yeah. So yeah. in in Elementary OS Loki, uh, we shipped it as Scratch. And so ah, this is it. this yeah. is a total rebranding. Okay. Well, dang, dang, it looks great. Um, and so now it's called Code, and that was mm -hmm. formerly formerly the artist formerly known as Scratch. Okay. Right. Dang. And those are just the things you're talking about at this point. Just the things. yeah. There's some app, app center updates as well, some uh, changing over, like uh, going from updates to installed and a few other, like mm -hmm. uh, tightening up of the UI there. It's good stuff, Dan. It's good, good stuff. So uh, when do I get it? When do I get it? When do I get it, Dan? Dan, when do I get it? Dan, Dan, can I have it now, Dan? Dan, when Please. do I get it? Can I try to bait it, Dan? Dan, when do I get it? Dan, I want it now. So um, we're we're trying really hard to get to the point where we can release a public beta. Mm. Um, what we're doing right now is we're trying to track any regressions from the old version and make sure that we fix those up and things are ready for our developers to uh, get their applications ready to ship in App Center and for translators to go in. And so we, we have to hit a string freeze so the translators can go in and do all their stuff, uh, you know, before release time. Very good. Well, yeah, I'll so, wait patiently then, I suppose, because it just takes its time is what you're saying. Yeah. So uh, uh, Ubuntu, though, is going final beta, though, right? So, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. uh, as far as upstreams are, are, you know, that's tracking nicely. So that'll that'll save us 
and let us focus in on just kind of cleaning up and then getting ready to roll that beta out like real soon. Ooh. All right. All right. I'm excited. Ah, well, thanks for coming by and giving us an update. I like you. I like that you guys are keeping us posted. It helps build the hype, and that's always appreciated. It's always fun to get excited about a new release. Yeah, trying to. Definitely tune into our blog because we, we're posting stuff all the time about what we're working on. Boom. We'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, how about a, a, just a quick shout out to the GNU Cache Project because I don't think we've ever mentioned them on the show. And they just reached a major milestone. Version 3.0 has been released, and it finally has been moved over to GTK3. Nice. All right. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think that's probably taken them quite a bit of work to get there. So I thought it was worth celebrating. Even though we've never really mentioned the show, it's one of those boring, just get work done tools. Uh, but it is kind of great. Yeah. I mean, for so for double entry, you know, simple double entry accounting stuff works pretty nicely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It looks like they've added support for some online service APIs, too. Oh, that's handy. So it could be, uh, yeah. Yeah. And some and some improvements to the SQL database backend stuff. So GNU Cache 3.0 with uh, GTK3 now baked in. <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I I, uh, I don't think I've probably launched GNU Cache and. um in years. All right, we do have a new Cubes OS. Anybody in the mumble room a Cubes OS user? You know, anybody? Anybody? I thought we had somebody at one point. Come back to us. Everybody switched over to elementary OS, I guess. Uh, it's so flashy. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we'll talk about Cubes OS then. So, Cubes OS is, you know what? You know what? Actually, before we go to Cubes OS, uh, let's, uh, let's take a moment and let's mention, let's, while we, we plugged, uh, we plugged uh, uh, um, uh, user error. I'll also mention, check out this week's Late Night Linux that just came out. It's Ike's last episode, uh, and uh, they have Graham on from Linux Voice and talk about some of their future plans, so go check out that. Uh, it was a pretty great episode. And then also, I think we mentioned it once before, but one more plug skis. Uh, the Ubuntu podcast is back from their season break. They recently had uh, a great interview. Yeah, we are. <laughs> Fantastic. Congratulations, guys. It's good to have you back. And so Ubuntu podcast is... Definitely worth checking out. And uh, you know what? Might as well, if we're doing this, I'll throw a plug in there for TechSnap. TechSnap.systems. Uh, Wes is going to do a breakdown of a super cool open source tool called Terraform. And uh, we'll be covering that in uh, this week's episode that'll be coming out on Thursday. Lots of fun. Yeah. So there you go. I just wanted to mention a few of those things because there's a lot of really cool stuff going on out there right now. Speaking of cool stuff, how about DigitalOcean? Oh, yeah. You know I'm all about it. Go to do.co slash unplugged and get a $100 credit. If you have a new account and you have, an, you have a legitimate credit card on file, you can get a $100 credit at DigitalOcean. This is secure, reliable, predictable pricing, super easy infrastructure at scale, and they now have flexible droplets. You can mix and match the resources that are most appropriate for your application. Do.co slash action. You know, I've told you so much about DigitalOcean. Wouldn't it be good? Wouldn't it be good to hear from somebody else, Wes, for once? Please. DigitalOcean's cloud computing platform was designed with simplicity in mind, giving development teams the ability to easily manage infrastructure. That's why thousands of businesses around the world are building, deploying, and scaling their applications faster and more efficiently on DigitalOcean. Using our simple control panel or API, you and your team can seamlessly go from deploying to scaling highly available web, mobile, PaaS, DBaaS, or machine learning applications. In just a matter of seconds, quickly set up one to thousands of virtual machines, easily secure servers and enable performance monitoring, and effortlessly attach more storage. Plus, you'll always know exactly what you'll be paying every month with a predictable flat pricing structure across all global data center regions. By using DigitalOcean, you'll get the infrastructure experience that development teams love with the features your business needs. Sign up for DigitalOcean today and experience simplicity at scale. Oh, do.co slash unplugged. Do.co slash unplugged. I don't know, Wes, all of a sudden I decided to make it a theme. I'd have um, other people do the ad read this week. It's way easier. (laughs) And there's less of a chance that you will mispronounce something. Why didn't I? (laughs) So it's the best of both worlds, really. Why didn't I think of it before? Fair enough. All right, so back to Cubes OS. That was a fun diversion. You know, sometimes you got to pet the dog, you know? Sure thing. Sometimes Keep you Keep them happy. Yeah. Cubes OS 4.0 is out. After nearly two years in development, countless hours of testing, you and I did mention it recently. 
It's got a new admin API and brand new core stack, fully virtualized VMs for enhanced security, multiple flexible disposable VM templates that can be spun up immediately, a brand new RPC policy system, Ooh. a powerful new VM volume manager that makes it easy to keep different VMs on external drives. That's and super cool. Says, hey, get this drive, plug it in, let's go. New template system and a rewritten command line interface. That's like a lot of stuff. And the, 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 I think the uh, virtualization changes stuff has been huge in this version of CubesOS. So big congratulations to CubesOS for the brand new release. I uh, I don't really, you know, like I know that the Purism uh, uh, Purism laptops are going to be shipping based on with CubesOS. I don't personally have a use for it yet, but it is very cool. The idea is is that you run everything in its own isolated VM. So you have a web browser VM, you have a chat VM, you have an IRC VM, like you have all these VMs on your system and there is some resource sharing they do so it's not like it's massively <laughs> right. But uh, the idea is that then everything has its own independent stack. And then as long as your virtualizer is secure, then your applications are isolated and secure. It's like containers, who needs that, right? Yeah, we already have virtual machines. And it's interesting to watch Cube sort of respond in a now a container world because Cubes has been around for a long time since before Docker was a really, uh, you know, a, a common idea. And so um, they've sort of had to watch the market move around them a little bit, and uh, they've had to adapt to that. And I think this release reflects that. Yeah, it's impressive that, you know, despite I, I certainly don't use it very very much either, though this is giving, making me want to give it a spin one of these upcoming weeks. You know, maybe, they have a lot of momentum going for themselves and making constant improvements. Yep, yep, exactly. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Richard Stallman's uh, post here in a bit. And uh, I think maybe we could revisit that then. Oh, yeah. You know, that security kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, maybe one of these days, Wes. Maybe one of these days. We're avoiding the whole challenges thing for a while. One of these days, we could do like a Cubes OS week or something. Oh, that could be fun. Especially if we could run on our laptops. Mm -hmm. You know, but we both put it on the laptop and we work out of that for a week. See what it's like. Really get an appreciation for that workflow. Would it be doable? I wonder if uh, people might be listening that do this all the time and might just think it's not that big of a deal. I don't know. Okay, well, let's do a little app pick here. It's kind of a server-side app pick, and uh, something that Wes got set up, like I said, during the intro. I've been thinking a lot recently about um, Discord versus IRC. As some of you guys know, we did a poll in the show, and it was pretty much universally IRC that won. And uh, I was trying to break down, like, well, what is this about? And a lot of people said, well, you know, uh, IRC isn't a cloud service. IRC is, uh, you know, it's... It's the open source way. Like, there's all these different reasons that people had. And I, none of it totally clicked with me because, I, you know, the IRC system that most people use, like Freenode or, or like GeekShed in our case, is, is hosted by someone else on, on their computer. It's kind of technically a cloud service. It's just a cloud service that we didn't call cloud services back in the day. It was, it was just a server you connected to. But if IRC were to launch today, that would be considered a cloud service. And so I didn't really buy the argument that moving away from Discord – uh, got us off the cloud or something like that. But you can't argue that one thing you can do with IRC that you can't do with Discord is you can truly brew your own IRC server, roll it yourself if you want. Definitely. And that kind of got me down this path of like, what other things do we commonly now use as hosted services that we could quickly and easily re-implement for ourselves if we didn't need something huge and large scale? Large scale. Maybe you don't need a free node scale IRC system. Maybe you don't even need something as large as what Jupyter Broadcasting needs. 20, 30, 40 people in an IRC room, uh, nothing massive. Do you really have to, how many hoops do you have to go through to just do this yourself? That's right. Maybe you just need a private server, you know, behind closed doors to yeah. orchestrate a couple things. So how easy is it? Well, Wes found Oregano. Oregano is a modern experimental IRC server written in Go. Yeah. You've guessed it was either going to be Go or Rust, didn't you? It's designed to be simple to set up and use. And it includes features such as uh, UTF-8 NICs, channel names, client accounts with SASL, and IRC v3 support. And you got it up and running on your uh, laptop there. Actually, it's running up on a DigitalOcean oh, drop. Of course, it. of course, of course. I should have known. I should have known. What is your initial impressions on the difficulty to set it up and all that kind of stuff? Oh, it was quite easy. Uh, they've got releases available. There's also uh, looks like there's it's in the AUR as well. If you want to give it a go that way, but really you just you know go to, go to the release pages on their GitHub, download it, extract a tarball. They've got a couple commands you can run to set up the set up the certs and set up a DB, and then 
away you go. I've posted an uh, IP there in the uh, IRC for our live listeners. Cool. You guys can go check in, uh, start chatting. There's a J- hashtag JB channel right now. I found a couple of things about it that I liked. Uh, it's got native support for TLS SSL. It's got uh, YAML configuration files that are easy to read. Passwords are stored in uh, bcrypt and are also salted, um, which I like all those things. Uh, and it, uh, at least at least from, from your description, seems to be easy to set up. So if you wanted to, like, if you did want to take this under your own control and you didn't need something large scale, I mean, I don't know. What, I'm not trying to say what this can or can't scale up to, but... I think a lot of times we get we get sort of carried away when we try to say we're going to replace Google or we're going to replace Discord and we try to replace it with something at their scale. It's just not possible. But we don't all need that scale. And this is an example of an application that you just put on a VPS in a couple of minutes that if you wanted to, everyone at work in your office could be using this. Yeah, no, I don't think that would work just fine. Yeah, and then maybe you wouldn't need Slack. And if it doesn't take hours to get it set up and secured, if it can be as simple as... I mean, how many minutes did it take you? Five, ten minutes? Less than that, yeah. Three minutes? I don't know. Because one of the appeals of Slack is when you just want to create a Slack group, you just go click a button, put a name in there, and start inviting people, and you're good to go. Well, this isn't that much longer. It's something you control, and there was just that creepy story about Slack giving access to your direct messages to management, and, you know, this doesn't have those problems, and anybody using any old IRC client can use it. That's pretty cool. And then if you want cloud support, you combine it with something like IRC Cloud. Yeah, right. There you go. You have a layered solution. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty neat, huh? Yeah, it's uh, simple, no nonsense. I don't know that it's as configurable as some of the you know standard yeah. IRC servers, but you, you might not need that, right? Like, if, especially maybe, or maybe you just you're using it to to transfer data or automate some some yeah. bots and processes around the office. This could be cool too. Like, you just need to spin it up during an event, right? You use it sure to like coordinate during an event or something like that, and then when the event's over, you spin it. You yeah. just turn it right off. Yeah. So, anyways, that's called Oregano, and we will have a link to it. In the show notes, and uh, it looks like they also have a couple of different test servers that are always running that you can check out as well. Levi's here to check it out. Levi says he approves of it. Don't you, Levi? Yeah, Levi the studio dog. He likes oregano. He probably does, actually. He probably does. He probably does. Get, so out, you, of, get out of there. Do you have any use for your own IRC server? I don't really. I mean, what I want, you know, because we can sometimes have hundreds of people in there, I just don't think I'd want to use something like this. Right. And I mean, it kind of makes sense as part of the business to have a, well, not really our special sauce to host our own IRC server. So, but... I don't know that I need one, but I could see it if you, you know, maybe you've already got written some IRC bots or, or yeah, you're just like a small office of tech savvy people and you just need someone to, to store your chat logs and make async communication and other things easier. Maybe you're doing a podcast. Maybe you're you doing know, a podcast. You got a podcast with a you know few dozen people watching live. I mean, like right now, we probably, there's probably not so many people in the chat room that we couldn't, we couldn't host all these people on it. I'm sure. Oh, yeah, we could even give it a shot. Yeah. Hmm. Well, some of them are maybe right now. You have people logging in. Yeah. Looks like we got a couple people checking it out. <laughs> Eric, TechMav. Uh, Eric, you got in there. <laughs> I got in there. Yeah. Nice. Sure did. Good. Good. Have fun. That's nice. It's really fast. Yeah. You, yeah. 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 This is just running on the the baseline uh, Dio droplet. So. Yeah. Well, there you go. And now uh, you're off to running your own infrastructure. Boom. You didn't even have to use Terraform. And I did not. One. Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool. If you have any other kind of uh, like really nice self-hosted services that uh, you know, it's something that we haven't really talked a lot about before because we've done the Nextcloud thing. You know, we've done all that. But I could also see this being helpful maybe if you're just trying to learn, like, to write an IRC implementation or something. You want something to, to either see the source or just hack against locally running it there, writing your client to attach to. That could be easy, too. Yeah, yeah. Let us know what you what else uh, you've been uh, re-self-hosting or would like to see us attempt. Go to uh, linuxunplug.com slash contact and uh, put it in there. Because I think it's not that, like, we have to be all, like... Uh, like uh, anti-hosted uh, services, but I uh, I think that if we can um, um, opt to use something like this from time to time, it's it's sort of uh, it sort of forces the rest of the industry, the software ecosystem, to still support it. So I, I'm I'm always a big fan of that. And it, you know, we're going to get into Richard Stallman. You know, this is kind of a good segue, actually. Uh, he uh, wrote a post over at the Guardian, and he calls it a radical proposal to keep your personal data safe. Um, and he. Uh, he really does. I'll just read. I'll just kind of read it, and then we can talk about it because he does a good job of sort of illustrating a couple of points that maybe could be practical, could could possibly work. Maybe we'll discuss that because I think that's sort of the question. But he writes: journalists have been asking me whether the revolution against the abuse of Facebook data could be a turning point for the campaign to recover pri- privacy. He says that could happen if the public makes a campaign for a broader and deeper push. Broader meaning extending to all surveillance systems, not just Facebook. Deeper meaning 
to advance from regulating the use of data to regulating the accumulation of data. Because surveillance is so pervasive, restoring privacy is necessarily a big change and requires powerful measures. The surveillance imposed on us today far exceeds that of the Soviet Union. From uh, For freedom and democracy's sake, we need to eliminate most of it. There are so many ways to use data to hurt people that only safe data, the only safe database is the one that was never collected. Thus, instead of the EU's approach to mainly regulating how personal data may be used with its General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, I propose a law to stop systems from collecting personal data. He means altogether. And the most robust way to do that, uh, the way that can't be set aside at the whim of a government, is to require systems to be built so as not to collect data about a person. The basic principle is that a system must be designed not to collect certain data if its basic function can be carried out without that data. So we have to start designing systems in a way that they just simply don't collect data because the temptation to have <coughs> excuse me because the temptation to have data is so high. It really is. Now, uh, is that practical, though? Uh, he talks about uh, the Transport for London digital card payment system that records the trips, the cameras that record your entry to the system when you go down there. Um, he says that we'd have to redesign security systems in a way in the public that where they don't constantly record everything, that the recordings would be local recordings that could be checked in the next few weeks if a crime were to occur but should not allow remote viewing without physical collection of the recording. Biometric systems should be designed so that they only recognize people on a court-ordered list of suspects to respect the privacy of the rest of us. An unjust state is more dangerous than terrorism, and too much security encourages an unjust state. So his, his, his argument there for the security cameras is local SD recordings, basically, and then the popo go in and recover the recordings uh, within a few weeks if there's an emergency. But maybe like every 90 days or whatever, uh, the cameras wipe themselves or just start right. overwriting themselves. Uh, and uh, same, with, same with like payment systems and whatnot. Is that, is that practical? Let's take that one first. Like, could we, because if you think about this, we have such a massive problem that we're facing now. Even Stallman in here feels a little defeatist. He comes across a bit defeatist. He, he does, yeah, right? Yeah, he talks about how people don't care enough and about how the only way this is going to change is people care, but people don't care. So that was going to be my question to you in, in your prompt. What do you mean by practical? Because obviously, I think in many ways, technically, yes, right? But I think he is somewhat correct in identifying a lot of the reasons, both both from the law enforcement side, right? More data means faster actions, maybe or arguably better public safety, perhaps not, but that's the case. And from the from the business side, more data is, is more features. And a lot of times those frills, right? A lot of times, even when we're talking about hosted versus self-hosting, those frills are that extra little stuff at the end that really makes the difference and that users really like, even if they're not central to the feature. Yeah, he argues that additional services could be offered separately to users who actually request and want them. And even better, those users could use their own personal systems to track their own journeys if they wanted or something like that. Like So the tracking stuff could be additive instead of built in. The other hard part, I think, is that a lot of times these in the small, they make sense, right? You're like, oh, yeah, I do want to see all my past trips on, on the tube or, or whatever. And it's only in the aggregate when it's this large, once it's become this large collection that it becomes creepy and, you know, complete surveillance. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. We have so many different things that are monitoring our activity now. We have data brokers, you have credit monitoring agencies, you have things like MoviePass that are trying to construct a night out at the movies where they track all of your location. And there's a lot of companies that are in this business now. I mean, Facebook and Google are maybe the most prevalent offenders that we talk about, but there's a, there, there's so much other stuff. And, and so what Stallman, is a, what Stallman is essentially suggesting, and maybe this is the core thing I'd like to bounce around with you and the Mumble Room is... Is it possible to design these systems just in a way, like, like, can we say they just by default don't collect information? Can we do that? Is that accomplishable? Uh, and why wouldn't that work? And I think, think about it too from like a system administration management standpoint. Uh, think about that for a moment. Could we do that? Could you build a system in a way where it's not collecting metrics, it's not collecting information and usage? I don't know. So let's discuss that next. But first, linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Go there to sign up for a free seven-day trial. And you support this here darn show. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. I am so tempted to play the clip just to keep with our theme. 
but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to change it up from what you expect. And I'm going to tell you, just go over there yourself because it is great. Linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. That's where you go to sign up for a free seven day trial and support the show. Try out their self-paced in-depth video courses on every Linux cloud and DevOps topic. They have a course scheduler to work with you if you're busy and they have learning paths, which are series of courses and content that's been planned by their instructors for a specific career track. That's awesome. And then you combine that when you're ready to go get your certs, they have, um, practice quizzes to help sort of get you ready. And they have courses that are created specifically to prepare you for those exams and flashcards, which are forked by the community to help you study. So it's a, it's a, I mean, it's like a, it's a system to help you get through this. It's exactly the kind of support I could have used. And then the thing that really benefits for somebody like me is these hands-on labs. They spin these servers up, but it doesn't matter what you're learning. You know, you pick the distribution with your courseware. The courseware matches it. The, the virtual machine, they'll spin them up. Uh, they even have uh, systems for AWS when you're learning that. And they have all kinds of great resources available to you, including study guides, lesson audio, personal notebooks that you can take with you offline, iOS and Android apps. Why not quiz yourself? And um, the, the, I, they have added offline support on the iOS and Android app for the quizzes. And you can cache the lessons. Ooh. Yeah. That's perfect for travel or just taking a break at the beach. And if you really get stuck, they got real humans that can help you. Full-time human beings that can answer your questions. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. Go there to support the show and a big thank you to Linux Academy for sponsoring the Unplugged program. So I was thinking about this. I, I, uh, I, I couldn't really build a network without some data. Like, if I don't even track the downloads and I don't know what shows are a huge waste of our time versus what shows people really like. So, uh, like, if you're building a server and you're not collecting metrics on where people are connecting from, then you can't properly build out how your how your site loads for people. You can't cache it correctly. Like, you have to do some level of tracking. And even at that level, metadata is useful. Certainly. You and I were talking about a couple of different examples of metadata that we have just from like friends and family that use different services. And it's like, you can kind of figure out what they're doing just by looking at the metadata. And I, I, I definitely wish Stallman was right here, but it just doesn't seem possible. It just doesn't seem, it seems like we've gone too far down that route. You could technically do it, but there's not enough motivation to pull it off. Do you think I'm wrong? Well, I, I wish you were more wrong. I mean, I think it, I think it, in, in an alternate universe, it seems it is. It all seems possible. It seems like it could be within our reach, except it's going to be a lot of work. And it's going to get like because, you know, it's one of those like we can, but should we questions? Right. And that takes impulse control yeah. and principles that you apply on a daily basis, especially in the face of like profit driven motives or other things. And that's where I think it breaks down. Do you think, okay, so I think maybe this could change if people started to really value what their personal information was worth. Like if a couple of things keep happening that made people understand the value of it. So Minimac suggests that perhaps it's an opt-in feature, but would people actually pay for that many or would they, if you don't offer to them for free, they're not going to bother. You know what I'm saying? Like I could, I get the idea that like you installment were positioning that uh, something like that could be an extra feature you pay for, like the tracking that records all of your routes so you can graph them all for the year. But I don't think anybody would actually pay for it. Do you? No, I think if you want to have trust again in these services, try to be as uh, to collect as less data as possible and tell your users you can have other features in this product, but then you will share this and this and this data. Mm. And all this stuff should be opt-in and not opt-out. It's like that I think you can gain the trust again. Otherwise, a lot of people are really scary now what they're doing. Uh, I wonder if either Popey or Wimpy would like to comment on the GDPR stuff, because obviously that's at the fringes of my understanding, but uh, he does mention in here the EU's GDPR regulations are well-meaning, but don't go very far. He says they won't deliver very much privacy because the rules are too relaxed. They permit collecting any data if it's somehow useful to the system and it's easy to come up with any way to make a particular data useful for something. He says the GDPR makes much of requiring users to give consent for the collection of their data, but it doesn't do much good. System designers have become experts at manufacturing consent. Consent. Um, does either one of you have a thought on on GDPR and his his take that it doesn't go far enough, it doesn't do enough, it doesn't really solve this problem? I would love to offer some erudite insight into that, but I've accidentally started playing Bomb Jack using MAME. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> yes, respect. That's fine. That's fine. That means no, I, that's uh, a lot more as, fun as, problem. As, 
as it happens, I have been looking at GDPR a little bit recently. And um, the, pro- the problem that I see with it, um, from my own point of view, with regards to the Ubuntu Mate project and the way that we collect our crowdfunding is that that creates a problem for us. But the issue is, is that the rules are too vague and therefore pretty much everything falls under its, under its rules in some fashion or other. And it's unclear um, if you're truly affected and whether you need to make a change or are people just making changes because it's so vague. Yeah, that, yeah, that is been my take on it too um i did a little bit of looking into it for tech talk today and that i i was really surprised at the language when i actually got my hands on it it just seemed it seemed like you could interpret that a lot of different ways and maybe that's what stallman is trying to get at here he says uh that uh we just have to stop surveillance before it even begins to prevent this and i think that ship's already sailed unfortunately and that's why i think he's a little defeatist like i think some part of him must know it's it's too late it's you know Right. And like maybe there are opportunities to choose some services if more services and, and things spring up that do claim at least to, to have those principles. But there are so many like, like like with cameras, like things that governments use. There's so many little areas that often are ignored by the public. It's hard to see there being a lot of scrutiny or impetus to make changes there. He does give a plug, though, for uh, their one click cashment payment uh, payment. Gnu Taller or Taylor, T-A-L-E-R. Taller, Taylor, Taylor, Taylor. I don't Probably know. not Taller. Uh, it's a electronic payment system under development that uh, they hope to make operational this year and uh, they're pretty uh, pretty jazzed about it so it gives it a plug in the uh, in the guardian article there I have not actually played with I have heard of it before uh, it looks like they've got a snazzier site now so that's, yeah that's the first step yeah that is uh, I don't know I read this and I think boy good idea the problem is is that it just doesn't scale like his idea for local storage and cameras uh, that doesn't scale it simply is there's too many cameras now, and there's too few people to monitor them, and it, it they just they have they it's too late. This this ship's already sailed. I wonder if there's is there is there time is there um can this abate some potential AI machine learning problems? You know we're only getting started in the the creep factors possible in that technology. <laughs> is there can we forestall some developments? Yeah, well, uh, is there something you can individually do? Is what I was thinking about, like. What if, uh, what if you just became an international man of mystery, or woman intentionally? Like you, we talked about this before, but like you start, you start using VPNs regularly. You start using GPG all the time. Uh, you maybe use different names for different sites. Uh, you use different containers in Firefox to create different identities. Or live CDs only. Yeah, like maybe you start, you start behaving like somebody who is trying to cover their tracks a little bit so that way it just becomes normal and then the more of us who do it it's just the norm like there's oh yeah that's just what technology people do oh those techies they're always using all that security right we know if we've seen things like some like devices that try to vpn as a router at the edge or funnel you through tor Mm -hmm. yeah so if you did if you did those things then that would mitigate tracking. And I saw this hat. I saw this. I saw this hat that uh, that blocks uh, face recognition. I wonder if we could find it. Hat that blocks face. Let's find. Uh, it, it's a face recognition like <laughs> prevention hat. It's the it's the most funniest thing because oh well, it's uh, <laughs> well that's a that's actually kind of a funny thing when you search for that. You get a lot of funny different results. But uh, <laughs> there's, there somebody is working on a hat that has a built-in LED light array in the brim which blocks facial recognition cameras. And uh, you, so you can wear that when you go out if you were super, super paranoid. See, that's the thing. Right there, I just did it. I just did it. We have to stop talking like it's a super paranoid thing to do. Like, it just has to become okay and normal to want to have a hat that blocks facial recognition. Right, that, that your personal privacy is a reasonable thing to protect without having to explain why or need, you know, feel like you're suspicious or paranoid. And nobody listening is going to do it. Nobody. I wonder what that tells us. Maybe this is something we're just... Maybe if we collect a whole bunch of information, we can find out what that tells us. Yeah, I think it tells us... It's. I think it tells us the scale of economies with technology is, and the momentum there is so strong that this is happening. That it's cap- we're now capable of having machines that are, are capable of analyzing images. We can have them monitor multiple video feeds at the same time. And that capability is just beginning. It's just going to get more advanced. It's It's here.
and we've all known anybody that's been in technology for years has known this is coming. We've all known this. Yes. It's, it's just, it's so obvious because the machines are getting better and better with like machine vision and all of that. So I guess the next conversation we need to be having and should already be having is what do we change about society and society's understanding of technology to make sure that this is properly stewarded <clears throat> so that people can be good shepherds of this stuff. Is that possible or is that pie in the sky? Uh, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it, it is pie in the sky. It seems possible. It seems like that can be a track that we could head down, but because nobody in here, I don't, I don't believe anybody in the mumble room. I don't believe probably anyone listening is going to start wearing a hat to block facial recognition is going to start, uh, using VPNs all the time is going to use GPG. Maybe those things are maybes, but it's going to be such a minority of the audience that does it. It could literally be down to like a, you know, you could fit them on, you could count them with one hand. How many people in yeah, our audience? Yeah, let alone popular culture. And yeah. how, do you, how do you get that movement to start? Sure, there's lots of people happening. concerned about Facebook. It's not going to happen. We just don't have that level of and then, skill or interest. And there's just so many new devices coming online all the time that track your activity, that generate metadata, that even just, you know, I, I covered an article uh, that uh, uh, was, was looking at the, they put a packet with consent, they put a packet capture at the router and just looked at the data generated by smart appliances like smart plugs and the Alexa and that stuff. And they were able to get a pretty good idea of what, what was going on sure, in the household. right? So th- that's all, it's happened already. Yep. It's, it's happened. And so, people still want those features, right? Like, think, just think about how many people, even in, in our audience, are still ho- you know, hooked on Google services because it turns out when they read all of your email with machines, it, it, it's nice, right? Or like they, 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 when they know all of the, the calendar appointments you have, yeah. they can do clever things and yeah. you like those things. Yeah, I'm taking the kids uh, on spring break uh, trip, a road trip over the weekend, and in my Google Now cards is a card for here's the things to do in that town. And I, you know, I, I'm like, wow. It read my email, figured out that I booked a campsite, and then generated a card of the highlights of what to do in that town without me ever prompting for a single thing. I don't know if, I mean, good or bad, it's just interesting that it can do that. So we're there. So that's why I think we have, we have to talk about the good stewardship stuff a little bit. And maybe, really, it's, we don't, we can't possibly uh, come up with a solution here, but maybe we can come up with a way to start the conversation. I, I don't know. Right. Sets of sets of principles and then maybe eventual regulation or other other steps so that these can be ingrained. Right. Like how, how do we set up at least guardrails so that maybe some of these can still exist if you want them, but that we can be assured that some sort of privacy centered policies are being followed on the back end. Hmm. Pie in the sky stuff on this week's episode. <laughs> I'm depressed now. It's being driven by corporations, right? So it's ugh, it's going to be difficult. But I guess we are their we are their customers. And I think there. I mean, there have been cases in the past, right, where like c- consumer sentiment changed, um, and and companies were forced to reflect on that. But it's a slow process, and I think also somewhat unpredictable. Yeah, uh, I'll give uh, if anybody in the mumble room wants to give a final word on the idea of. Of kind of what we do now that we're at this point with the Googles and the Facebooks and the Cambridge Analyticas and all of the other monitors out there, what is the next step that we can practically take? Does anybody anybody have thoughts on that? You mentioned GPG. Mm. Um, that is definitely a way to encrypt email and make it possible. And I just recently found a way to do it with Apple Mail. Is anybody going to seek that out? No. Yeah. Unfortunately. And so that's that's just kind of the world we're living in, is that nobody even knows they can do it, let alone will do it. Yeah. Yeah, and the thing is, is that Stallman's not going to be around forever. And there's really almost nobody with, that gets media recognition that's banging that drum like that. Eben Muglin. Yeah. Is yeah. the name. Well, and, and Edward, I could name a couple others. Edward Snowden has been also, uh, you know, making some public statements about Cubes OS, for example, yep, has right. been yep. promoted by Edward Snowden. Uh, so there's others... But, um, you know, it's a handful of people, don't you think, Dar? I think it's a handful of people, but you don't really want many people to do this. See, Stallman is an issue sometimes because of his other political views. Eben Moglen seems to be the most balanced person so far in terms of being to the positions of Stallman. Because it, he, Stallman is usually a little bit of the extreme to kind of make that contrast to the middle ground that most people actually live in. Evan Moglin is kind of more towards spending that side, but actually still reaches the people of the middle ground. Edward so, Snowden, he's always going to have that reputation of the past yeah. of what he has done. Yeah. And then you have to think he still uses, you know, the proprietary product still. He says Apple is good and things like that. 
So that's not really the message for a foundation like that. So Stallman's solution for uh, piracy or privacy, sorry, is uh, build the systems not to collect the data to begin with. But uh, my counter to that was we're so far, far past that. Uh, so what do you do now, Dar? So what do you do now at this point? Now that it's already there, everybody's already monitoring. There's thousands of cameras in cities in any modern city now. So now what? So I think that the the point we got ourselves in is the one that things like Freedom Box matter more. It's a project that intends to be this device that you sit in front of your router, so you, all of your traffic goes through it, kind of does its fix before it gets to the real network, and it happens. You make phones that follow the same principles. It's not connected to your modem at all times. And you, you keep doing this and actually making people care. And eventually, when it comes to the CCTV cameras and everything, which is the part we can do the least, it, it becomes less of a thing because usually CCTV cameras are way worse because they have so much other data on you already, right? So mm -hmm. they can then say, oh, yes, we're spotting these also other behavior. But if there's just a footage of you going somewhere, there's no other notions of your blog post. It's kind of irrelevant most of the time. It's public information like anyone would have seen you. It does seem like, though, as long as we're connecting out to services that track us, there's only so much we can do. Yes, right. If you're connecting to Facebook still or Twitter or Slack or Google, no. you think not? Let's imagine the Freedom Box scenario, right? Let's imagine the Freedom Box scenario. Uh, you post on Facebook, but Freedom Box already sees that you're posting on Facebook, so it encrypts the message. You see it as if it was decrypted. Your friends see it as if it was decrypted. Yes, it is stored in Facebook, but ultimately, it's encrypted text that actually is there in the database. I didn't realize that was a see, capability for Freedom Box. Great. That would be, that if that was possible, like, so the Freedom Box is essentially doing encryption of the Facebook post and decryption on the other end automatically in, in this scenario, in this hypothetical scenario. This is the type of idea that Freedom Box aims to achieve. It's not at that stage. It's hard work. It requires a lot of people, and not that many people are working on that project, which makes it yeah. funny enough because, you know... It's important, but ultimately it does some of the primary fundamental things like your email actually intends to do this for all email providers actually intercepting there. And that's kind of what's intended. And if we get to build tools like this, then nobody needs to worry. Like it automatically torrifies your traffic and things like that. Now, I just hope that we can build these things and get them established while enough people still care. Not to make right. this about it's, the it's damn probably kids, a pretty, sh a pretty short little window that we have. Right, that is what my concern is. Like that, that, that is a that Freedom Box is. A, it does look like a great project. I'll have a link in the show notes, that but freedombox.org if you want to check it out. It seems like part of the problem is just too that like oftentimes you know maybe with enough consumer interest we could have some easy to use privacy focused things, but even making the claim of privacy, right? It's not it's not a feature that you use in a normal sense, and it takes a certain amount of understanding of the, the technical systems underpinning it to be able to appreciate, like, is this privacy real or is it just hype and marketing? Yeah. So that makes it hard for consumers to self-select as well. So, uh, Mumble Room, remind me, who just bought Tunnel Bear? Was it McAfee that just bought Tunnel Bear? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And that that's an example. Intel owns McAfee. Yeah, right. Oh, actually, I thought they spun them off. But either way, it, it doesn't matter. My point is, is that... Uh, it shows you that even when there's this is not to make this like a like a socialism thing, but it seems like to me like if there is a if there is a business directive to earn money uh, at a service like a VPN service, um, that is a really really precarious position to be in, and your company's got to be structured right to do that. And the problem is is that you know another company can come in and buy them, and they can have a completely different set of standards. So that's why it would be nice to have be something that the open source community addresses, or at least. At least, uh, even if it's a commercial company, the, the solution they're implementing is using open source software. Using open source, having more nonprofits involved, some more things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. These, in my perspective, this is the reason you don't pick software for its technical capabilities, but rather for the principles of the project. That's how you know that they're not going to sell out to somebody that would then allow those things to happen. That's the whole principle. You make contracts like the GPL does to... When you actually sign up to FSF, the FSF goes and makes an effort to make a contract to you that they will never go and do other things. So you have legal ground to sue them if they do so. Ultimately, that it's that kind of trust that is required more than the technical capabilities. And we tend to very often go to the technical capabilities as a choice. We say that it's great that it's open source, but that doesn't allow the reversibility of the open source project. Yeah. While having that type of criteria that does allow for that. That is a well-put well point. In fact, I think that's a good note there to wrap that segment on because 
perhaps long term, that is the best way to go about making your choice. I think so. All right, Mr. West, the Linux Unplugged program is live every single Tuesday, and it would love to have you join oh, that virtual yeah, club. do it. Apparently, we talk about ourselves now in the third person. That just happens. Come join us. Tell us to stop. Tell us to keep it up. We need you here. It only stops if you make us. Go to jblive.tv on a Tuesday. Get it converted to your time at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. And again, notes for everything at linuxunplugged.com slash 243. Oh, thanks so much for being here. And we'll see you right back here next Tuesday. We name this thing, and then we get out of here. Amazing. Good job, everybody. I know it was kind of an awkward, somber episode with that shooting going on. Yeah, that's true. It's weird. So hopefully everybody at YouTube is okay, including some people that we know that work there. So, yeah, our thoughts are with them. All right, jbtitles.com, jbtitles.com. Yeah, uh, Dar, I think that was a good point. I'm glad we were able to end it on that. Yeah, definitely. And Dan, thank you very much for making it. That made the... Beautiful. That made that segment much better, as always. So I appreciate you. <sighs> Thank you, too, to everybody else for making it. Good to have all you guys here. You guys are the taps. The Stallman Directive. Not too bad. No, not bad at all. Plundered piracy, uh, privacy booty. Uh, the code of code is code. 404 Stallman not found. <laughs> Clouds of participation. Or precipitate irisate. Yeah, you have to look at it yourself. So that's that's difficult. My brain isn't working too good today. Yeah, it is. Well, it's, it's it's busted, Wes. I've used all my brain. I have to take the rest of the week off. I think you should. I used all my brain. Everyone, hang there. tight. Yeah. We'll be back next week. Yeah. <laughs> all done. <laughs> just put reruns on. See if anyone notices. Yeah. Let's just. We'll just go back and we'll play episode forty-three in place of episode two forty-three and see if anybody even notices. You could all. Well, you know what? Let's go see what we were talking about uh, two hundred episodes ago. I, I wonder if we can find that. You think we can? All right, you guys go boat while I go see yeah, what we decide were. for us. We can't title this. No. Uh, let's see. Episode, uh, oh, interesting. 31 is when we changed over to the new logo. Okay. So I guess it's not, I guess I can't call it new anymore. Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, it's the Four- standard logo. <laughs> 43, uh, fre- mint seven, fresh or stagnant. Oh, interesting. Wow. Yeah. Um,. What was the verdict? Well, I have a feeling I would say stale, but uh, let's. Hey, Chris. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Have you got a tremendous amount of spare time today? Um, not particularly, but I, I you know, I got, I got okay. to edit I'll, this. Uh, issue, uh, but no, no, uh, that's fine. Well, oh, that's mysterious, though. Yeah, that's so mysterious. That's super mysterious, though. You're leaving me. Um, You're just letting that dangle. Well, you know, I'll I'll let you choose whether to do this or not. But if you do snap install. SDL pop, SDL, you know, the simple direct media layer, yeah. SDL POP, and then run SDL pop. It's not my fault if you lose the rest of your day. Right? <laughs> Noted. Yeah, that's right. fair. Okay. Yeah, that is a good disclaimer. <laughs> We're going to give it a go. All right. The Stallman Directive is winning right now, by, by the way. So if you have a title opinion. All right. So now I'm going to run SDL pop. Does this need sound or anything? or? Uh, sound Do you is, have the with recording sound, yes. somewhere else? This is in case. This is amazing. This is amazing. Uh, okay, so to quick save and load, press. Oh, I didn't. Oh no! What? Oh, Prince of Persia! Amazing! Is this? It's an SDL reimplementation of the DOS disassembly that was done a little while ago. What? This is great. This is so great. Looks good. Oh man, I didn't read the keep the, uh, keep the kids busy over spring break. <laughs> Yeah.